It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 811 for the 23rd of September, 2022. This week, maybe you love software as a service, but probably you don't. Regardless of your opinion or mine, it is the future, and other industries are taking note. In short circuits, Microsoft is in the process of executing a nearly flawless flip-flop to correct problems created by attempting to force OneNote for Windows 10 on OneNote users. They relented following an outcry from fans of the standalone application and have now improved the standalone version and made it the primary OneNote application. Low-income households can receive a discount from the Federal Communications Commission for basic high-speed internet access. I'll explain how. And 20 years ago, only on the website. In 2002, Corel released what would be the final version of Ventura Publisher, a star-crossed desktop typesetting application that was better than the competing products, but never quite caught on. Users had been waiting a long time for version 10. Software as a service, rental software, however you want to refer to it, is widespread and growing. Some users like the idea, many don't. Software developers do like the subscription plan. I may be in the minority, but it seems to me that software as a service, or SaaS, has advantages for both developers and users. Specifically, users always have the most current version of the application. That means more than just the latest features, because frequently updates correct errors that cause malfunctions, and the updates also eliminate security issues. For developers, there is a reasonably predictable income stream that allows for long-term planning and staffing. So I asked a silly question. Is rental software good or bad? And my equally silly answer is, yes, it is. Well, that suggests the right answer depends on an individual's needs and budget. Renting and leasing aren't new. Our mobile phones are something we pay for monthly. Likewise, internet access. Many people lease automobiles. Maybe you rent an apartment or a storage space. If you're buying a home or a car, there is a monthly payment, although it's not really rental and eventually you'll own the home or the car. So why do some people react so negatively to software as a service? Maybe just because it's a change, and many people do not like change. You might be paying a monthly fee for a password manager, even though the fee may be paid once a year. Cloud-based storage is often free for small amounts of space, but you'll pay if you need more. My online backup system costs $10 a month paid monthly. In addition to the monthly fee for an internet connection, my wife and I pay for several streaming services that combined are still considerably less than the cost of cable television. Maybe the smart way to approach this is to decide which services we need to pay for, which have free plans that offer enough functionality for our need, and which open source applications could be substituted for products and services that we might otherwise need to pay for. For example, protective applications. Microsoft offers Windows Defender with Windows, and that may be all you need. 
Windows itself is now provided for a single fee that includes updates for as long as you use the computer it was bought with. That means Windows and the Windows Defender are always up to date. If you want a third-party protective application, the free version is often sufficient. In fact, the free version may be better than the paid version because paid versions often include bloated functions that slow the computer. But they also offer features that aren't included in Windows Defender. Another example, password management. I'm of the opinion that everybody should have a password manager. My choice has been LastPass because the paid version synchronizes with my Windows, Apple, and Android computers, tablets, and phones. There are free password managers, and some of the paid systems have free options with limited services. Or what about backup applications? My backup situation is a bit complicated. There's a single drive that captures a daily snapshot of all work in process, three disk drives that I use for weekly data backups, two disk drives that I use for twice-weekly images of the boot drive, and CrashPlan's continuous cloud-based backup. I keep the local backups solely for convenience. Because those disk drives are in the same room as the computer, they don't really count as backup. If you depend on backups made at home, at least store them in a separate location, maybe a friend's house or a bank safe deposit box or an office. But if you can afford $10 a month, one of the online backup systems seems like the best and most reliable choice. How about email? Did you know you can pay for email? Your internet service provider doubtless includes email, and there's Gmail. Windows users can activate an Outlook.com account for free. And if you have a hosted website, the account probably includes a large or possibly even unlimited number of email addresses. A paid email account will provide additional services that might include encryption. ProtonMail, for example, has a free service that includes a single email address, three folders, and up to 150 messages per day. There are other options ranging from $4 to $10 per month. Proton's primary advantage is end-to-end -end encryption without either senders or receivers having to master complex encryption protocols. And there's cloud storage. Both Microsoft and Google offer limited amounts of online storage for free. I have 200 gigabytes of Google Drive storage included with my Pixel Pass subscription. Previously, I paid $15 per year for that. The Pixel Pass program combines YouTube Premium, Google One, which was formerly Google Drive, and other services with the monthly fee for phone service and the phone itself. I've become a big fan of online storage because I can view and edit my files from any device that has internet access. I can also share files with individuals or make them available to anyone with or without a password. Monthly payments will probably continue to become more widespread. In many cases, the rental plan makes a lot of sense. In some cases, it doesn't. And occasionally, it's simply absurd. In the absurd category, Lauren Good, writing in Wired, noted that BMW started offering rental plans for heated seats in some of their cars. So far, this is just in South Korea. And if you think you could just rent the heated seat option during the cold months, forget it. It's an annual fee. Quoting an article in The Verge, Good noted that Tesla will begin requiring a subscription for navigation services, 
That actually seems reasonable. My 2009 Honda Fit has satellite navigation, but it needs an annual CD update for about $100. Well, no thanks for that. I just use my smartphone at Waze instead. But on the 1st of January, 2022, the built-in clock was stuck on the first day of the year, and every time I used the car, the time reset to 4 p.m. This probably could have been resolved by a software patch. Instead, Honda told customers to wait. Wait until the problem would resolve itself in mid-August. Yes, eight months in the future. Well, in mid-August, the clock got the minutes right, but the hour showed standard time instead of daylight time, and the calendar was still stuck in January. I wonder if this would have been any better had a subscription plan been in place. I'm also waiting for some sharp lawyer to file a class action suit. But I digress. Should we really be expected to pay for hardware and automotive features monthly after purchasing a car? To me, that seems like a fee too far. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. short circuits, Microsoft has committed to cleaning up the mess it made with OneNote. This is an application I have used since 2002, despite Microsoft's ill-advised changes in 2019. And it is literally one of the most used applications on my computers, not far behind web browsers and email. In 2019, OneNote for Windows 10 replaced OneNote 2016, because Microsoft had started developing for the Windows Universal Platform, UWP. The goal was for any application to work on a Windows tablet or phone in addition to Windows desktops and notebooks. Look around. How many Microsoft tablets and phones do you see? I'm not counting Microsoft's Surface tablets here. They're really not tablets. They're convertible notebook computers. Apparently, the developers saw that future and didn't like it. Meanwhile, the OneNote for Windows 10 app was severely crippled. It lacked functions that users of the now-discontinued OneNote 2016 loved. Two quick examples. The app could show only one notebook at a time, while the older version listed all notebooks. Also, the app didn't have a function to allow up to 10 tags to be applied with a keystroke. Now, the current version of the app has partially restored that feature. So if you'd like a third example, here it is. OneNote for Windows 10 saved only to the cloud and didn't offer an option for storing notebooks locally. I have saved my notebooks to OneDrive because that makes synchronization across computers and other devices easier. But in some enterprise environments, saving data to the cloud is not permitted. 
So people complained. They complained a lot. And that led Microsoft eventually to relent and allow users to download the 2016 version and install it along with the app, or even instead of the app. I've maintained both versions because I did expect the app would eventually be improved to include the missing functions from the 2016 version. And it did include some features that weren't in the 2016 version. So even though users have been able to download and install the standalone application, it was in addition to the app. But Microsoft has announced that support will end for the OneNote for Windows 10 app and has rebranded OneNote 2016 as OneNote. In three words, it's about time. OneNote is the default application included with Microsoft 365 on Windows 11. Microsoft's tech community blog had this one sentence back in 2019, We hear you loud and clear. You want to keep your notes your way. Wow, what a surprise. Should anyone in the Microsoft development community be unaware that software users want the application to work the way they want it to work? Is this a complex concept? So now, the OneNote desktop application is installed by default alongside Word, Excel, and PowerPoint for Microsoft 365 users. If you want information about OneNote, check out the frequently asked questions about OneNote in Office 2019 and Microsoft 365 on Microsoft's support site. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The Android version of OneNote has already received some updates, such as the new grid view that shows some of whatever text or image is on the page. The grid view displays the sheets you've been working with recently. At least for now, Microsoft will continue to support both the standalone version and the app. Inadvertently, the attempt to simplify development has made the situation more complex. Desktop versions are available for Windows and Mac OS, and portable versions run on Android devices and on Apple phones and tablets. The desktop version of OneNote will be gathering some new features in coming months. These include a math assistant that expands on the ability to insert formulas and the ability to solve simple computations. The math assistant will be able to solve an equation and show the steps required. Users will also be able to paste TikTok videos into OneNote, just as they've already been able to do with YouTube videos. Undo and redo functionality will be improved soon, and users can now choose a page background color. This is all in addition to the ability to add lines or a background grid. Those are primarily useful for those who work with the inking features. If you've been using OneNote for a while, I think you'll like the improved trajectory for the coming releases. Some low-income households can receive low-priced or even free internet service by using the Federal Communications Commission's Affordable Connectivity Program. The discount also applies to those who live on tribal lands. 
Qualifying for the Affordable Connectivity Program, or ACP, depends on having a household income at 200% or less than the federal poverty guidelines. Other qualifications include those who are in or have a child in government assistance programs, such as the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, Medicaid, Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, Supplemental Security Income, Federal Public Housing Assistance, Veterans Pension and Survivors Benefit, Free and Reduced Price School Lunch Program or School Breakfast Program, or have a federal Pell Grant in the current year. Participating in the program does not affect Social Security, Retirement Survivors, or Disability Benefits. As essential as Internet access is for work, school, and health care, high-speed Internet remains unaffordable for many households. The FCC's Affordable Connectivity Program reduces the cost of getting online for people with limited income. Some Internet service providers offer fully covered Internet plans, so the actual cost could be as little as zero. To learn more about the program and the qualifications requirements, see the ACP website. There's a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The program pays $30 per month toward Internet service for eligible households, and some companies offer basic plans at $30 a month. To find out if you live in an area served by an Internet service provider that participates in the program, see the Universal Service Administration Company website. There's also a link to that site from TechBiter Worldwide. The USAC collects monies and administers the universal service fee under direction of the FCC, but it is not a government agency. Eligible households can also receive a one-time discount of up to $100 toward purchasing a laptop, desktop computer, or tablet from a participating provider. You won't need a discount to read 20 years ago on the TechBiter Worldwide website. In 2002, Corel released what would be the final version of Ventura Publisher. It was a star-crossed desktop typesetting application that was better than competing products, but still never quite caught on. Users had been waiting a long time for version 10. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. <music>